The New Testament reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone, and happy Mother's Day again to all the mothers and grandmothers here. I hope you have a very happy and restful day. Uh, uh, Mother's Day is not happy for some people, and we want to recognize that as well. Some of you may have uh, lost a child. You may be estranged from a child as a mother, uh, or you want to have children and you can't. And we want to recognize that there are sort of a number of different emotions on a day like today, and I just pray God's uh, blessing and benediction on all of you, uh, whether you are a mom or an aspiring mom or anywhere in between. Uh, Happy Mother's Day to all of you. Um, Because it's Mother's Day, you probably have lunch plans, so we'll try to get moving here and I'll get through the sermon. Uh, So why don't I pray for us and then um, we'll talk. Let's pray. Father, guide us. We pray that you would Help us to not only inspect this text, not only learn this text, but help us to live it. Help us to be uh, generous people as individuals and certainly as a congregation to which Paul was writing to, uh, a church that he inspired to be more uh, liberal in their giving. I pray that in town would, and uh, if there are people here from other churches, as there certainly are, that they might take home a sense of gratitude to you that would lead to uh, the grace of giving. And we pray that you would lead us and guide us and um, inspect our hearts and help us to see uh, all of the ways that we put hurdles and put blockades up against uh, giving more of our resources. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of studies, a number of studies have been done on American Christians and giving, and some of them have come, with, come to the conclusion that those who regularly attend church 
earn about $2 trillion in income annually. And yet on average, this study at least, found that they give less than 1% of their annual earnings to charitable or religious causes. And one in five give nothing whatsoever. Well, why is this? Maybe partly because American Christianity is almost just barely Christian at times, but sociology professor Patricia Snell Herzog wanted more than just an armchair cultural analysis, and so she and her colleagues visited churches, looked at record books, studied financial uh, records, and interviewed members, and almost everyone said that giving to the church and other charitable causes is, in fact, a good thing, a necessary thing. They knew that they should give more. They wanted to give more, but they didn't. Some truly didn't have the resources to give, and then there was a large degree of people, a large proportion that thought they didn't have sufficient resources to give, but actually probably did. But here's the interesting explanation. Many of them had what they termed comfortable guilt. Those two words don't normally go together, but comfortable guilt. You would think that most people would suffer some sort of cognitive dissonance between the call to give, the call to be charitable, and the actual action of not being giving, not being charitable. And you would expect them to change their behavior to match the ideal or change the ideal to match the behavior, but most people don't. And Herzog says, for some reason, when it comes to financial giving, most American Christians appear to bypass the social psychological law of human nature to get rid of cognitive dissidence, and yet they just let it linger. They do not seem to be concerned about closing the giving gap between the ideal and the practice. And she concludes later in the study, giving may come more readily from those who do not treat contributions as an isolated event outside the bounds of their everyday life and everyday reality and instead have an integrated, holistic approach to their Christian orientation that fosters then a generous lifestyle. In other words, giving isn't just an isolated discipline. It's not something that you simply engage in in one part of the liturgy, but it is a core orientation of the Christian life, which in fact would rule out guilt as a proper motivation, we should say, because what does Paul say in this passage? That the motivation to give, the reason the Macedonians give, is not out of guilt, but out of joy, out of delight. Now, if you are visiting this morning, you're not yet convinced of Christianity, maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, this is just what I expected, the church to talk about money. Well, let me just reassure you that this just happened to be the text that we encountered this morning. We don't always talk about money and giving, but I do want you to stick with me and hear this because if you're interested in finding out who Jesus actually is, if you're interested in exploring Christianity, you've got to explore what does he say, what does Paul say about money, because both and the whole Bible talks about money and what we do with it and how we interact with it and relate to it is a central core tenet of spirituality, and we can't get around that. You're going to find out that Jesus, that Paul, the Bible, talks an awful lot about money, and so we can't investigate him, and we can't follow him without being honest about and recognizing what he says about money. 
and that giving isn't simply just the way to allow the church to function, to keep the lights on, if you will. But it's a central part of spirituality and that we can't, as a church, we can't as individuals be healthy, spiritually healthy, without dealing with the patterns of thought, the patterns of idolatry that connect themselves to our money and to our possessions. Now, Paul is talking about a very specific historical situation here. As we've gone through this study, a lot of things have kind of been lost to us. What is the situation that Paul is talking about and addressing before we then make applications? But in this one, it's very specific, and Paul talks about it. And what it is is the church in Jerusalem... Jerusalem Christians are suffering extreme poverty. And so Paul, as he goes around in his missionary journeys, he asked the other churches who were slightly more prosperous to take up a collection, not only for themselves, but for the Jerusalem uh, uh, Christians in Jerusalem. The, in Jerusalem, the, the Jews were, though the Christianity was tolerated in many places around the Roman Empire, at least for a time, in Jerusalem it was not because there was such a high population of Jews that saw Christianity for what it was, that they were claiming to be an extension of, and a fulfillment of, the realization of Christianity, of, Jude, of Judaism. And so therefore, Christians in Jerusalem were particularly persecuted and therefore they lived in extreme poverty. And so Paul travels around with these people on his heart and on his mind, help them out. And so he uses one of the churches that supported the Jerusalem church as an example. That is the Macedonian church. This was in Greece. And they respond with unthinkable charity and generosity towards these people, which they likely have never met before. And it's even more astonishing because they were also very, very poor. Yet they respond to Paul's invitation with gladness and with joy, not calculating their material poverty, but thinking about their spiritual wealth, that they had something that they could give. Their unattachment to their things, the measly things they did have, was so strong that they were able to give even out of their poverty. They were really generous, Paul tells the Corinthians. And he says, I'm telling you this because I'm coming for you next. I want you to give like they did. And so he sort of baits them a little bit. And he says, look, Corinthians, you excel in speech, in faith, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in love. Now, we know all of the problems, if you've been here in this study, we know the problems of this church. They didn't excel in everything. In fact, they had a lot of problems. But he's sort of buttering them up a little bit. You excel in all of these things. You see, the bait is being set because he's about to ask them for money. I was sitting at a dinner table one time, and it was a group of pastors, and a buddy of mine, his church was just flourishing and growing, and they had tons of money coming into it. And this guy was sitting here, and he was raising money for a church. And he just baited my friend David the whole time. Oh, tell me more. It's so great how good you guys are doing, that your coffers are full. And David just went on and on talking about how great everything was. And then he turned around and said, so it looks like you would be in a great position to support a church plant in the Washington, D.C. area. And my friend David just was like, ah, why did I fall for that? That's what Paul is doing. 
You have all of these gifts, Corinthians, but how are you doing with your money? We have gifts here in town, but how are we doing with our money? Will you give like the Macedonians? You're never supposed to tell a child, you know, why can't you be like your uh, brother? Why can't you be like your sister? And you're certainly not supposed to tell a spouse, why can't you be like Bill's wife? Don't do that, okay? But this is exactly what Paul is doing here. Corinthian church, can you be like the Macedonian church? And what do they have to live up for, live up to? First of all, the Macedonian church was joyful in their giving. They didn't just write a check. They didn't have checks back then, but, you know, they didn't just put the coin in. They did it joyfully. In the midst, verse 2, of severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. When you're a child at Christmas, what are you thinking about the night before you go to bed? You can't go to sleep because you're thinking, I've got to wait those whole eight hours of sleep before I can get to the Christmas tree and open everything that is mine. And you have to keep the kids from looking around the Christmas tree before Christmas because they want to look at the tags and count up. How many gifts do I have? Well, when you're a parent, you realize there's not many gifts down there for me unless I bought them or unless, you know, the spouse bought them. But there's tons of gifts that you've bought for your children. And I find myself staying up at night, not able to go to sleep because I'm thinking about their joy. I'm thinking about them tearing into these packages and just being like, oh, this is so great. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Mom. That's the joy that the Macedonians had when they thought about the Jerusalem church. Wow, this is going to be amazing that I can give this. Paul or Titus will take it, and it will alleviate suffering somewhere else. They realize that one of the deepest joys of human existence is not the acquisition of of things, but it's divesting ourselves of our things for the benefit of others. And this was Jesus's conviction, right? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for our sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So they are, first of all, joyful. That's one of the things that The Corinthian church has to live up to. If they're going to give like the Macedonians, then they have to give not just out of duty, but they have to give joyfully. Secondly, they have to give generously, entirely on their own. This is about the Macedonian church. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. Paul, you can see him sitting around a table with other pastors bragging about, you know, my church, I don't even have to tell them to give. They just ask me, how can I give? They, in fact, beg me to give. And all the other pastors are like, yeah, right, that never happens. Paul is not begging the congregation to get behind a need. They are begging him. Can we help Jerusalem in any way? We've heard about their plight. Can something I have be taken to give them some level of comfort? What may be uncomfortable for us to learn is that Paul is implicitly defining for us what a generous person looks like, and he's asking us to inspect our own lives and hearts and say, am I generous as well? And the answer is that they don't have to be convinced to give. They do it on their own. It's not just because there's a pitch 
But Macedonia asked Paul, how can I be involved financially? My charitable giving personally, mine and Katie's, is on autopilot. And the reason for that is that I'm very forgetful. (laughs) And if it's not on autopilot to the church and other charitable causes, I forget. And then I don't have the discipline to go back and make it up. So it's on autopilot. So each and every month I see it coming out. And when I do, when I happen to check my bank account, which is rarely, unfortunately, but when I do, I look at that and I say, you know, Brian, you are a charitable guy. Look at that money going out of our account so that it can go help someone else. Way to go, Brian. Even though I don't have to do anything, it just is on autopilot. I don't even have to remember to bring my checkbook. But here's the thing. I can't recall the last time I spent any amount of time looking for an opportunity to give. I've looked for ways to spend I look for ways constantly to buy. I can spend an hour on Amazon or cars.com without the blink of an eye. Just thinking about, wow, I could have that. So if the Macedonians are the test, then I'm not that generous of a person, even though giving regularly. Because it's not really necessarily done out of a heart of generosity, looking for opportunities, seeking ways to give more, and looking for places in the church and outside that may need resources. And it may not be money. It may be time. It may be service. It may be intellectual. It may be vocational. But Paul is saying that generous people look for opportunities to give. Giving is more than just more an orientation to the world rather than just a discipline. But it does take, and we say this during our offertory, it does take discipline in order to grow to maturity, in order to become a generous person. Some people may have a personality inclination. They're a little bit more attuned to other people's needs and a little bit more ready to give. But most of us, it takes discipline to learn to be generous In the act of giving, each and every week, we are training ourselves to think first for others, to find our joy in the joy of others, to look for opportunities outside of just when the bag comes around. So the Macedonians were joyful in their giving, they were generous in their giving, and then finally they were sacrificial in their giving. And here's where we really need to put our thinking caps on for a minute, because this is a little bit more subtle But money and our possessions, if we think about it, are a means or a measure of how much control we have over our world and our future, at least a perception of it. It gives us, money does, and we have to be honest about this, it gives us more opportunities to choose what we want. It provides us some level of insurance over our future. It gives us flexibility to spend on things that we want to, that poverty doesn't. We need to be frank about that. And when we give up significant resources, we give up a measure of control over our lives. It limits our choices. We have less, in, less insurance against the unknown. We have less ability to make tomorrow different than today. And so when we give, we need to realize we're giving up not simply tangible things, but we're giving up a perception of our control over the world. Money, then, is not just a measurement 
of wealth, but it's a measurement of control. It's a measurement of power. And this is why it's so seductive. Money gives us choices. And sacrificial giving will limit those choices. We can give in such a way, and I think this is Jesus' point in the Mark passage, we can give in such a way that we still retain control. We still retain power. We still retain most of the choices that we have in life. Sacrificial giving is choosing to give in such a way that it pinches us a little bit and that we don't have all of those extra discretionary choices that we would have otherwise. The Macedonians said, I choose to limit my choices so that someone else can have more. Notice, Paul could say here, very simply, everyone give 10%. Now, for some of you, that may be a gigantic ask. Either you're not used to it, or you just don't have the means discretionary in your budget, and that's okay to think about and be serious about. Others of us, that would be simple frankly, for us to give 10%. But notice Paul doesn't do this, even though there's a great precedent in the Old Testament to say everyone give 10%. And probably the churches would be fine if everyone did that. And in town would be fine if everyone did that. We would be fine in our budget. But a standard like that, like 10%, is usually something that facilitates an artificial compliance or how the Bible talks about a false righteousness. We would love to have a measure, whatever it would be, if I can just hit this, then I'm being faithful. But instead, the measurement is Jesus became poor so that you can become rich. And if you model your giving upon that, you will give until it hurts. You will give until it is a real sacrifice. It will hurt because in your generosity, you will not own all that you want to. You will not enjoy all that you want to. You will not have access to everything that you want to do and perhaps choices that other people have. But through your sacrifice, you will identify with Jesus in his sacrifice for you, and you will come to know him more intimately. And it's when we prize that more than the control and the power that money gives us a perception of having, that's when our giving begins to change. That's when we begin to willingly sacrifice and in the midst of that have joy, not, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. I'm in trouble now. In order to begin to unravel ourselves from the love of money, to lessen its seductive power, we have to understand how the Bible talks about it. And Paul here is not in any way saying that money and possessions are evil. In fact, he wants the Jerusalem church to have more of it. He's not chastising the Corinthians for having money, for having possessions. And he never goes so far to say that wealth is inherently sinful. It has to do with what you do with it. He doesn't give them just a standard. He doesn't just give them a percentage. He gives them a test. Will you give in this way? He knows the seductive power of money because of the apparent control it offers us. But any time, and this is throughout the Bible, any time we seek to control, we seek to determine our future, we control our world by accumulating wealth, it will always end up controlling us instead. The quote that I put in your bulletin is from Fast Company in 1999, a fascinating article. At some level, most of us know that more 
is not only a promise, it's also a promissory note that lays claim upon our time to our families, to our energy, and to our hearts. I mean, that could be a Bible verse right there. Ultimately, there's no single answer to the question of how much is enough. Ceaseless striving is indelibly stamped onto the American character. The American dream, an old engine that's been installed in the new economy, says that we can have it all. The American reality, however, whispers that when you do get it all, you'll only want more. And this is illustrated in one of my favorite TV shows, The Simpsons. Homer says to Mr. Burns, you are the richest man I know. And Mr. Burns says, yes, but I'd trade it all for a little more. Isn't that true? Seeking to control our world through money puts promissory notes on our time, our families, our children, our spouses, our heart, our happiness. And we have to realize that. In the same way that you take out a loan and you begin to make payments on that debt, the illusion of the control of money will be a debt, will put a promissory note on us that we're always paying off. We never get out from under it. Because why? Money answers to something very deep within us. Paul could have easily laid down a command, even a progressive tithe tithe structure, which we would find a little bit more fair. If you make this much, you give this much. If you don't, you give a little less and a little less and so forth. That would be more fair. But he doesn't do that. I'm not commanding you, verse 8, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. We're not supposed to do that, right? Compare one another. But that's what Paul is doing. For you, you know, and this is the linchpin, this is what he's trusting in, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you could become rich. He's being kind of sneaky, isn't he? If you really are a Christian, then you will give in this way. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. If you recognize who Jesus is in your life, I don't have to give you a command. I don't have to make a pitch. I can just trust that you're going to give and you're going to be generous and joyful and sacrificial. Jesus became poor, born in a cattle trough, working-class job in a nowhere town, a poor carpenter's son, He died a shameful death as a criminal for your sake and for my sake. Through his poverty, you can become rich in such a way that you don't have to look to money and possessions anymore to control your life. And here's the really challenging reality, that if we don't give our stuff away, in remarkable proportions, then we haven't yet grasped or are currently not remembering Jesus' generosity towards us. Or let's put it more starkly as we wrap up. You will always give, I will always give, effortlessly to that which is our salvation, to those things which give your life meaning. You will effortlessly spend on those things. Why do I spend an hour on cars.com? Because I like the idea of me driving a nice car and the comfort of that and there not being any noises in the car and it's starting every time I get in it. I like that idea and it's not a wrong thing, but I can obsess about it. 
And I can effortlessly put money towards that and a number of other things. And if we're seeking to impress others or to define ourselves by our clothing, by our car, by our address, that's your salvation. That's your life. And your money will flow towards those things without even thinking about it. You'll look for ways to spend towards those things that are your idols or your salvation. But if Jesus is the one who saves you, if that's your orientating principle of life, not just a one-time decision that you made way back when, but this is something that you actively cultivate in your life, then your money will more easily flow to his work and his life and cultivating his causes. Not commanding you, Paul says, but testing the sincerity of your love. Do we get it? Do we understand that the crux of the gospel is about giving? It is about generosity? Give ourselves, especially our money, because of the gospel. That's far more difficult than just a tax. Intowners, I would love for you to talk in your groups this week as you sit down and meet and think about what it would look like for our church, first of all, to excel in this grace of giving. What could we do? What would it alleviate? How would it change our service, our mission? How would it empower us to do things that we would love to do? And what would those things do if everyone excelled at giving? If everyone was looking for a way not only to give but to unburden ourselves from the love of money and we saw giving through the church as a means to do that, how would that change things? Think about that in your group. Discuss that this week. And being in a group, and this is why we talk about it a great deal, that Sunday morning and being in a community group is so highly important because being in a group that you identify as your group, and these are my people, it exposes you to their needs. It exposes you in a frontline way of needs that are going on in the congregation that, are you, that you are there to help to subsidize and help to meet. And if you're just here on Sunday morning, you don't get to encounter those types of things. How can sacrificial giving become more a part of our culture beyond just the way in which we do business, beyond just keeping the lights on? How can it be more a part of our culture? If you come up with something good in your group, let me know. I'd love to, I'd love to know. I'd love to share it with others. One of my favorite writers is Cormac McCarthy, and his popular, most popular, probably his easiest read is The Road. And it tells a story of a father and son on this journey through the American South during an undetermined dystopian future. And they're always on the brink of starvation. They're always looking for the next meal. And they sit down in this one moment, and Cormac McCarthy says this, in the pocket of his knapsack, we're told that the dad found the last half packet of cocoa, and he fixed it for the boy. And then he poured his own cup with hot water and sat blowing on the rim. You promise not to do that, the boy said. What did I promise not to do? You know what, Papa. And he poured the hot water back into the pan and took the boy's cup and poured some of the cocoa in his own and then handed it back. I have to watch you all the time. 
the boy said. The boy has to watch his father to make sure he doesn't give to the point of his own decline. The money, the things that we love so much, they don't love us back. They don't think about us. They don't consider us. And they certainly don't save us. But the generosity of God is like that dad. It's always reaching out. It's always considering you. It's always thinking of you. It's always giving to such a way that it would lead to the decline of God. In fact, it did. Jesus gave us, as it were, the last half packet of cocoa so that you could have life. So therefore, we can now give. Let's pray. Father, as we leave here, I pray that we would be convicted, but that it would not lead to guilt, and it certainly would not lead to shame. I pray that we would consider our checkbooks, our bank accounts, our mutual funds, the little things that we have if those things aren't representative of our possessions, and that you would help us to more and more see other people through these things and through these resources, not because we have to, but because we get to. And I pray that, therefore, you would let us see a season of in, at in-town here of uh, prosperity and all of the ways that it would be good for us to be prosperous, not so that we can be prosperous, but that we can give more, we can do more, we can step into places of need. Father, I pray that you would move us in that direction, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.